On this episode of the Black Men Speak podcast, we are tackling something that is rarely talked about in the black community, sexual dysfunction and prostate cancer. 18 million men in America have sexual dysfunction and black men are more likely to experience it than other races. So let's talk about it. The future of the type of research we need to do in this space needs to sit black men down in private settings where they feel comfortable and have the discussion as to why things like sexual health aren't aren't discussed, where the gaps are. So I sit down with Dr. Yaa Niemi. Dr. Niemi is a surgeon, researcher, educator, and patient advocate who specializes in urological oncology and general urology. His clinical interests include open and minimally invasive kidney, prostate, bladder, and testicular cancer surgeries. Yeah, I, I always like to say uh, medicine and health is not very social. You, you don't go to the bar or the dinner table and look at your buddy and say, hey, let me tell you about this problem I have, right? right? That's just, it's not the way that it works. He gives us the truth about sexual dysfunction and some of the things we can do non-surgically and surgically to treat this part of our health. The way I think about it, anything that is good for your heart and your general health is going to be good for your erections. As an expert in prostate cancer, he also provides a reason why early detection is key to our survival. Black men in the United States are twice as likely to die from prostate cancer. That is a fact. Okay? Uh, black men in the United States are 60 to 70 percent more likely to be diagnosed with prostate cancer every year. That is a fact. I think what the literature has shown recently and some, some studies that have been done by you know, my colleagues across the country um, and even myself with some, some folks um, have shown that if black men were to have access to treatment and use the same types of high quality treatment that are available to other men, that the rate of dying might not be any different. Well, welcome tonight. Um, I'm glad that you're here because, um, as I said earlier, uh, this is just not something that we as African-American men talk openly uh, about. And so and I was doing my research uh, and I was like, I've got to find um, a brother that can really break it down for us and answer our questions. So I'm glad you're on this evening. Oh, I want to start by saying thank you. You know, um, this is an area that I'm very passionate about in the research that I do. Uh, it's an area where we need to make improvements. And, uh, and so anytime I get an opportunity to uh, have this discussion, I find it to be a really fruitful and important thing to do. So oh, great. Uh, thank you. And since you were, you were said you are passionate about it, what made you decide to go this route and focus on urology? Mentors, you know, when I was in Chicago, there was a, a, a young black, urologist by the name of Adam Murphy. Uh, he was at Northwestern. He had just joined the faculty and he was a role model. You know, I, I was at this big academic institution, you know, with a lot of big names, a lot of important people around. And there was a shining example of what I could potentially be uh, in Dr. Murphy. And so I, I knew I wanted to do something surgical, but it really was identifying a role model like him that, that, that led me to urology. Great. And, and, and yeah, and that's really important because, you know, role models are very helpful. And when we're able to find one, 
that can really, you know, direct us on our path. Whatever the career is, it makes it really beneficial, adds a lot of peace, especially as doctors, because we really need to have someone that guides us. I know there's probably just so much to know and learn. And when you can have someone that can point you in the right direction, I'm sure that was very beneficial for you. It's hard to be something without seeing yourself in that position, you know, and so uh, in medicine in general, uh, African-American men and women, um, underrepresented uh, minorities represent just a small percentage of the workforce. And they're not always in these subspecialties that uh, are really specialized and um, have a lot of notoriety, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I was very fortunate to be in a, at an institution that had promoted someone who was excellent. And it's also given me the inspiration, hopefully, to, to serve that role for others. So it's been a really fun process. Uh, joining the faculty here at the University of Washington and, and continuing to do that kind of mentorship. Uh, that's something that's really important to me. Well, you're going to serve as a role model for us tonight. So let's let's get started. So the studies are around 18 million men deal with erectile dysfunction. But for the most part, this is something we don't discuss in the African-American community. Why is this something that we just don't discuss? Well, I'll start by saying there, we don't have a lot of great answers in that domain. I think the future of the type of research we need to do in this space needs to sit black men down in private settings where they feel comfortable and have the discussion as to why, you know, um, things like sexual health aren't, aren't discussed, um, where the gaps are, where opportunities are to address the needs of the community, because truthfully, any answer I give you wouldn't be founded in a lot of evidence, mm. uh, unfortunately. I will say that um, erectile dysfunction is pretty common, right? Um, mm. And so somewhere between uh, 10 to 20 percent of men between the ages of 40 and 70 uh, have some degree of erectile dysfunction. You know, there's literature to suggest that men start to experience it as early as their 30s, maybe even mm. their 20s. Um, and a lot of it has to do with what's driving that, uh, the cause for erectile dysfunction, uh, in a particular man. So it's a really common problem. Yeah. You know, I, I always like to say, uh, medicine and health is not very social. You, you don't go to the bar or the dinner table, look at your buddy and say, Hey, let me tell you about this problem I have. Right. right. That's just, it's not the way that it works. Um, right. Right. so I think if we want to tease out what the underlying issues are, we have to be really intentional about it. Um, so is of the causes individual or what are some of the causes that you normally see in patients that lead uh, to erectile dysfunction? I, I'm happy to talk to the, about this subject as a urologist, but I do want to give a disclaimer that as a urologic oncologist, you know, there are others in our field who are better suited to have nuanced discussions about uh, sexual health. All sounds right? great. But, yep. but I, in general, we, we divide erectile dysfunction as far as causes into a couple of categories. One is sort of what I would call vasculogenic. These are the causes that are due to uh, in, impairments or some kind of disruption of blood flow, which is a key uh, tenant of developing an erection. And then the other bucket that I typically tend to put it into is psychogenic mental, emotional components that can affect erectile function. And so those are two different mechanisms. Obviously, you can have a component of both. Um, there's also some neurologic potential causes for erectile dysfunction. 
you know, I deal with that in prostate cancer surgery, right? So most of the, op the operation that we do for prostate removal impacts erections because it tends to impact the nerves that help supply sort of erectile function. But those are the three general categories that I think are high level ways to think about it. Oh, okay. And so primarily psychogenic is definitely meaning that it's somehow in our minds and, um, yeah. My, and it's something that we either can control it or we need to go to some sort of counseling in order to to get that uh, looked at or examined in order to feel better about. It. Yeah. Know. Well, when I say psychogenic, you know, you can imagine if you've experienced a trauma, you have a new diagnosis of a serious illness. You've had a death in mm. the family. You have a lot of anxiety because you've lost your job. You know, um, these are things that you might not make a straight line connection to the fact that these major life events are impacting your erectile function. But those are the type of emotional and mental events that can impact uh, erections. And so one of the things that is important to understand and tease out is that the psychogenic causes oftentimes require some you know, help. They require the discussion about your mental health. Sometimes they just require stability in your life if that's you know not present at the time. Um, but it's important to differentiate that from sort of the, I'll call them organic, but sort of the physical ailments that may contribute to erectile dysfunction, such as you know having heart disease or diabetes. You know those are very different causes from from the former. Mm, okay. With with that said, are there and I don't know if you could expound upon this a little more, but are there any natural things that men can do or changes that men should be making uh in order to kind of alleviate uh erectile dysfunction? Yeah, it's a I mean everybody is interested in prevention, right? And and yeah. prevention can be a really powerful way to stay healthy. I think that when you say natural remedies, that's a different arena. I'm not an expert in that right, right. Uh, at all, and and very clear <laughs> with patients about. Yeah, that. not ne what, not necessarily remedies, but just should there should be some changes that yeah. men should be making in order Absolutely. to. Absolutely. So, eat better, eating well, uh, avoiding fatty foods, high sugar foods, um, things that would naturally predispose you to high blood pressure or diabetes or vascular disease in general. You know avoiding smoking tobacco, you know, exercising, right? Things that help you stay healthy. The way I think about it, anything that is good for your heart and your general health is going to be good for your erections. You know, okay. uh, it's all tied together. So okay. when guys ask me that question, I say, yeah, you know, if you can exercise three times a week, you can cut out an extra burger, you know, get the smaller fry instead of the extra large, you know, these little things, uh, you know, cut out soda, just being healthier, that will improve your erectile function and certainly can prevent it from getting worse. And and so the in the main so the main cause why it affects men older and S forty and because of course our um we don't get as much exercise as uh, as we should as we get older. Well, as you get older, you know, blood vessels undergo changes that um, that lead them to not be as effective uh, for the vast majority of men. And that's really what is driving it. You know, um, 
it is the blood flow into the penis that makes it rigid. And so anything that compromises the quality of blood flow to the penis will do that. And that tends to be associated with aging. It's the same reason your risk of having a heart attack goes up as you get older or having some of the other diseases that are blood related, kidney disease, for instance. Um, can be related to blood flow or quality of blood flow. So that's why we tend to see it in older ages. It's just sort of wear and tear, uh, so to speak, over time. Okay. Um, that's associated with vascular events for the most part. If someone was to try to repair their erectile dysfunction from a surgical standpoint, uh, what are some of the things that they can, they can do um, from the non-evasive to the evasive and what are some of the risk so I, I, you know when i see a, a brand new patient who says you know doc i've noticed it, like it gets hard but not all the way or like if i start having sex it, it gets soft you know pretty quickly or i can't um you know any of the things right it's not hard enough for penetration i mean there's a list of things so this is why I think it's a hard area to study because erectile dysfunction doesn't just mean like, oh, it doesn't get hard at all, right? It's like all the variations in between. The first thing we do is sort of get that history, right? Because I want to be able to tease out if it's a mentally driven thing and process versus a physical. Um, and if we determine it to be a physical, so blood flow kind of issue, then that's when the Viagra type medicines come into play. And that's really the first line of of treatment. It's non-invasive with a uh, Viagra. So the, the common name is sildenafil. And there's a lot of, there's a, at least three or four different types of those medicines that are available. We tend to prescribe sildenafil and tadalafil the most. Hmm. The side effects are going to be, uh, in some men, they can have headache, they can have flushing, they can have runny nose. And then obviously in men who have significant heart problems or are on certain types of heart medicines, um, it can be, um, it can, it can drop your blood pressure to really low levels. So those are the, those are really the side effects and, and the way we counsel men, um, especially those who have heart histories is to talk to their card cardiologist or their heart doctors, make sure they're okay to be on it. But for the most part, pretty well tolerated works best on an empty stomach, uh, mm, and okay. definitely avoid, uh, drinking alcohol, um, with those medicines. Good. That's good. So to that, know. <laughs> yeah. So that's you know, the first on a, on, a, on a date night, you, you better make sure you're not drinking any uh, yeah, alcohol. Yeah, <laughs> no, no alcohol and, and take it on an empty stomach. It's much more effective that way. Okay. One thing that I think is a big confusing parameter for men is they, a, a lot of guys will say, when they first try it, will say, hey, doc, I took it. It didn't work. And then I'll say, well, did you engage in foreplay? No. You know, like, they, you know, did you, what, what did you do to try and get stimulation going? So, for these medicines to work, you still have to have the normal activities that you would have participated in to achieve an erection. So it's not take the pill and then like wait for it to get hard, so to speak. Okay. Um, and so I think the way you use it also matters. Say once men have no success with that approach of the pill, then we start stepping up from less invasive strategies to the most invasive, which is a surgical prosthesis that can be implanted. Mm -hmm. um, with a pump that you squeeze, it gets it puts basically saline into some cylinders that get rigid, you know, 
men and their partners are really satisfied with this the implants but obviously it's a it's an operation and so that is the surgical management that is most invasive along yeah, I did, and i did read that that for those that did get a penile implant that they would be satisfied with it i mean and can you go into that a little more i know it, yeah when well, do you engage into i guess pumping you know your penis so it gets erect prior yeah. to your sexual so let's, let's walk through the other couple of agents and then we'll sort of spend a second on surgical okay uh, Sounds, implant. Yeah. okay so the next thing that i usually recommend for men is a vacuum device it you know it's one of the tubes you put around the penis it sucks blood into the penis and you put a ring at the base of the penis so that is obviously less invasive than having a surgical procedure and the vacuum device doesn't involve any sort of uh, medicine being put into the penis. So uh, for some men, it works really well and they're very satisfied with it. After that, you've got an injection uh, and there's a different formulas that you can mix up to in, uh, inject into the penis that will make it hard. And then there's a suppository you can put into the tip of the penis that can also help uh, with erectile function. So those are the, the that's the in-between phase. You okay. know, injection to the penis is not benign that's definitely not like taking a pill but again they can work really well so then that takes us to the prosthesis surgical procedure so out done usually uh with a, either as an outpatient or a one night stay in the hospital uh, you got to heal from surgery before you can use it usually about four to six weeks um and then the way that the device works is it's called an inflatable penile prosthesis okay so it has a reservoir that holds fluid in it. It's got two chambers that go into each corpora of the penis, which is the erectile body of the penis. And then it has a pump that sits usually in the scrotum. Um, and when you pump it up, it brings fluid from the reservoir into the cylinders, and that's what makes the penis erect. Okay. And so it's whenever a man and his partner want to engage in sexual activity, he just has to pump it to the level of firmness that he deems um, satisfactory for an intercourse or any activity and, and, and it's ready to go. When we do the surgery, sensation is intact. And so, um, oh, okay. you know, in theory, you know, and, and this is borne out by the, uh, the, the data that you and I talked about as far as satisfaction goes, it should feel the same, but the, you know, the cylinders cause rigidity in the main body of the penis, but the head of the penis is not firm. Um, that's just an anatomy thing that is really hard to overcome. But it works. It works really well. And, and um, I, you know, I worked with someone at, Cle in, at the Cleveland Clinic that always joke, you can, you know who's had the prosthesis place in the waiting room because they're usually there. Their wife is smiling. They're smiling. Everybody's <laughs> happy. So as invasive as it is, I think it, it can be a really good uh, procedure to consider for, for the right men if they're having a lot of difficulty with erections. And, and how much time does it take to, you know, get rigid? Is there a... Is that, I mean, how Not much time? very long. Oh, yeah, right, okay. I mean, you're just pumping it up. So I mean, we're certainly somewhere in the, depending on how comfortable, uh, how comfortable you are pumping it up, and you know, I'd say under a minute. Oh wow. Okay. Yeah, quickly. You know. Okay. Nice. Okay. That, yeah. I guess it, uh, I was going to say a joke, but that's that's I'll <laughs> leave that. I'll leave that uh, alone. So um, okay, but that but that's good. I mean, that's good to know because I mean it's. 
you know, of course, there's always not story, but I'm sure there was a movie about it. Uh, and I can't remember the movie. And, you know, it's almost, you know, we j- we tend to joke about these things and not take mm-hmm. it seriously. And that's why I'm glad you're on tonight, because it's like a minute is really not a long time. And you can still kind of at least maintain a sense of, I guess, intimacy with your partner you oh. know, prior to having to do, you know, the, what you have to do in order to have intercourse. So yeah. um, that that's um, that's good to know. So. um so thank you about that. Uh, when, you know, and not in general, but when you kind of explain uh, the procedures to black men, how, what, is their, you know, what is their sense when they come in, you know, to talk about these things? And then what is their feelings or sense once you kind of explain, you know, um, how it can help them? Great question. I, I mean, I think men in general... People in general, I mean, you know, we spend a lot of time training to learn the human body and anatomy. Um, I think there is a lot of apprehension and fear about surgery because there's a lot of unknown, right? Um, And for procedures like this, I think, as you alluded to, men come in and um, they may already at baseline have some feelings about the healthcare system, right? Because there is generational history there that has not always been positive. In fact, I shouldn't sugarcoat it. Uh, for the most part, it hasn't been positive, right. uh, especially with surgical subspecialties. Um, and so I think there's naturally a lot of apprehension. I, I've been fortunate, right? I'm a black man um, practicing, um, you know, urology. And, and I think naturally there is some comfort that other black men get when we meet. And sometimes they're very upfront about that. I take a lot of pride in taking good care of everybody that comes through the door. Obviously that's, that's just a, what, that's what I signed up for, but there is something pretty unique about being able to build the bonds of trust with another man that I know has some apprehensions and fears about what, what they may be up against, you know? Um, and so for, for a pr- procedure like this, that is, um, you know, can be an outpatient procedure, um, yeah, for me, it's a lot of time spent sort of reassuring that, yes, you know, you, sh- you should wake up from anesthesia. We wouldn't let you have surgery if you're a high risk. You know, like we expect things to work the way that they're supposed to, that kind of thing. I mean, and yeah, and it's interesting. You would think, you know, in the the drug makers that we don't even have these issues when you see uh, when you see the commercials, you know, they primarily feature white men. Uh, as having these problems and that we don't, but clearly, you know, with 18 million men being affected, it affects all uh, people of color across the board. But, and so why, why does the industry not do more to, to, for it to be more inclusive? I don't know if I have an answer to that. Um, I, I do think that in general, you know, minority populations, when it comes to marketing and when it comes to sort of, the image of things aren't haven't always been included. And I think that's changing. It's good. I think because a lot of people have shed light on that, but mm-hmm. it's really hard to understand the motivations behind that other than, you know, the people who are creating the content, you know, implicitly or explicitly are, are looking at people who look like themselves and, and might be framing, you know, the work they do around that. I don't think it's always, in the light of wanting to do something negative. I think the impact 
um, unfortunately is that it ends up being negative, right? So I'm a, a, an editor for a special issue on disparities in urology. And one of the, um, one of the things that recently came across my desk was this question about, is it important if some, some kind of pathology uh, that's presented in a textbook uh, uses different people's color, you know, different skin colors, right? Because if you don't know what a particular skin thing looks like in a black man, because you've never seen it in a textbook, maybe when you see them in real life, it doesn't jump out to you in the same way it does on a lighter you know, shade of skin. So, mm. I mean, it, it's got me thinking about the importance of representation in, in all the domains beyond sort of the things that I, I think about as far as workforce or, you know, patients participating in you know, high quality care or clinical trials, that kind of thing. I mean, I think it matters across the board, like you said. Right, 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 great. And so, yeah, so let's kind of, let's shift gears a little bit and talk about prostate cancer. Um, uh, My dad, you know, he's, he had prostate cancer and, you know, he survived and I think because of, and to his credit is, has always been one that has always gone to the doctor um, mm-hmm. It's very, you know, takes very good care of his health and and uh, made sure um, that he, you know, he, he caught it early enough to, to, you know, get a surgery and he's has recovered. But, mm-hmm. you know, for, you know, when you hear this word, but really, um, if you could break down kind of in layman's term, what is prostate cancer? Um, sure. Yeah, I'd love to hear that. So now, now we're entering an uh, area where I feel like I have a lot more. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So the prostate is the first part of the male urethra. Okay, uh, it's attached to the bottom of the bladder, and this is why when you know men get older and their prostates enlarge, you might hear about urinary issues that are associated with the prostate. It's function, yeah, like going to the bathroom a lot. Yeah, going okay. to the bathroom a lot or having difficulty emptying your bladder. It's because it's that first part of your bladder's empty, um, trail of emptying urine. Okay. It, it functions sexually as a producer of semen. So it produces the vast majority of what we call seminal fluid, which is the fluid that comes out when you ejaculate mm-hmm. and is what your, your sperm swim in. So this little organ, which sits below the bladder, uh, above your rectum, which is why the finger exam matters because it's, it, that's where we can feel it is how urine and semen sort of leave the body. It can be a site where tissue can overgrow. And really, when we talk about cancer, cancers in general reflect the abnormal growth of cells or tissue. And so when the case of the prostate, you can have a, you know one abnormal or two abnormal cells start to divide very quickly and over time, they'll organize themselves into a, either a tumor or a series of tumors that can be detected. And that's really what prostate cancer is. It's that abnormal growth. Um, the risk of this abnormal growth is that it, it starts out in the prostate, but you know the prostate's in, in, it's in um, continuity, it's in flow with all your blood vessels. And so little cells little prostate, abnormal prostate cells can leave the prostate and and implant themselves somewhere else in the body. Um, Mm. And that is really when we talk about metastasizing, 
That's what we're talking about. It's that those cells traveling to lymph nodes in the pelvis or the bone or the lung or the liver. Um, that's a different type of disease that's harder to treat. But when it's located only in the prostate, then we have all these great tools that are really effective in combating prostate cancer. What would be some of the signs they, they need to get checked out? Yeah. Well, er, early prostate cancer usually doesn't have any symptoms. And so this is why the blood test is so valuable and the PSA test. You know, most of the time when you're showing signs, symptoms of prostate cancer, quote unquote, it means it's really advanced. It's, it's likely spread to other places. Um, some common signs maybe of local things would be difficulty urinating, blood in the urine. You know, the, these are things that, you know, in addition to other potential malignancies like a bladder cancer, prostate cancer would be on the list of things to think about. You know, I, you know, we talk about bone pain, you know, unintentional weight loss. Again, things that are signs of pretty advanced uh, cancer um, as, as being other signs or symptoms. But truthfully, that's, this is one of the unique things about prostate cancer, um, especially in the early phases, is uh, you may not have any symptoms at all. Mm. At what age do you kind of start to really, um, for men's health, do you start to want to start to look into that to make sure your prostate is in good health? Yeah, great question. The recommendation currently for screening for prostate cancer, and, and maybe we should talk about prostate cancer screening mm-hmm. just for a second. So yes, how, how yes. do you, what activities can you participate in to catch prostate cancer early? Because, you know, in the last answer, I basically said, hey, if we catch it early enough, you got a lot of good options that can give you a cure, you know, cure you of your prostate cancer like radiation or surgery. Well, the way to detect cancers early, um, prostate cancer early, which is unique compared to other cancers, is the PSA blood test. Uh, and we usually do that in conjunction with a finger test, but really the blood test is a, is a key um, in detecting prostate cancer early. So it's go get your blood checked. And, and the test is called the PSA, which stands for prostate specific antigen. And PSA 10 is elevated for a whole host of reasons, but one of the reasons it's elevated can be prostate cancer. And so if your number is high when it gets checked, usually you'll get referred to someone like me, a urologist, and we'll have a discussion about whether or not you need to undergo a biopsy, which would be the only way to really tell whether you have cancer or not. And I, and I know it's technical, uh, but what would be considered a high uh, PSA? You know, I wish I could just give you a number. Oh, and this okay. is where it gets wow. really confusing, right? Interesting. Because okay. we know that um, for younger men, if you're in your 40s, uh, this, you know, the PSA threshold that we should use is different than if you're in your 70s. So historically in the U.S., we've always said PSA of four uh, or higher is, is abnormal. But in a, in a clinical trial done in Europe, they actually use a number of two, two and a half. And I think if you're looking at screening younger men, so men in their 50s or 40s, it's uh, you need to be a little bit nuanced in how you think about the PSA number. Um, and that's hard, right? Because I think that that adds a lot of complexity. Someone like me who does prostate cancer work all the time, you know, um, I have I feel like I've been trained to navigate that that nuance a little bit better. But you know, if you're a family doctor seeing a lot of patients a week and you know, you just want a single digit that says, okay, if he's ab- if he is above this number, I should refer him. And it's, it's not always that simple. Mm, okay, great. And so I know there was, um, 
there was a study. I was, re, you know, doing a little research prior, a little bit prior to the call, and it was stated that, you know, even though African American men are, um, you know, diagnosed with higher, but it doesn't necessarily mean we are dying any dying any greater than uh, other men. So, is that is that true? And if that is the case, why does it seem like um, we are diagnosed? more with more prostate cancer than other races yeah so the truth of the matter is that statement has a major qualifier so black men in the united states are twice as likely to die from prostate cancer that is a fact okay uh, black men in the united states are 60 to 70 percent more likely to be diagnosed with prostate cancer every year that is a fact I think what the literature has shown recently and some some studies that have been done by you know my colleagues across the country um, and even myself with some some folks um, have shown that if black men were to have access to treatment and use the same types of high quality treatment that are available to other men that the rate of dying might not be any different and so that is a different qualifier that is somewhat um a reflection of either subsections of black men who have insurance and access to good care um or and sometimes it's just you know uh analysis that's adjusting for certain things so not somewhat theoretical i should say um but that's Mm -hmm. an important thing to really um dissociate and so is there and so also with the and i just don't know if this is the case, but with being so few black men or even uh, doctors of color in the field, are is there any studies or anything where they're not being diagnosed uh, or, or I guess checked to see if this might be an issue? Or yeah. is it the fact that we're as black men or just are not going to the doctor or is it a combination of both so i'm gonna take a, a sort of long way to get to answer your question okay but i i want to make sure i address something you asked earlier which was at what age should you start getting screened what what age should you get checked for psa and so the recommendation is for 55 to 74 years of age and where you should get psa screening but we just went through the numbers that say you know black men are more likely to get diagnosed and more likely to die. And so there's a group of you know researchers, myself included, who have really been asking the question, well, should we be screening earlier? And we've had some really exciting data that shows that you know, by lowering the screening age from 55 to 45, even 40 for black men, that you can have a big impact on men dying from cancer. Because one of the things that definitely happens for black men is if they're not getting screened they're more likely to show up to the doctor with that cancer not being inside the prostate alone so it's in other parts of the body Mm -hmm. no longer have the option for cure okay so yeah and that's good to know especially because uh, not want to cut you off but not because we think that you know when you hear about prostate cancer you just think about that you don't think about, well, you know, the, the actual cancer is because it's there, it's spreading to other parts of the body. So it t- actually, prostate cancers typically are pretty slow progressing, meaning 
unlike other cancers that might move more quickly from the first site, which are the primary site, as we call it, to other places, you know, prostate cancer usually on the order of, you know, half decade to decade before it's going to spread to other sites and maybe even longer. And this mm. is just sort of our estimate. Um, and so there's this tremendous opportunity um, with screening to catch things early. Um, so you were asking me, why does this happen to black men? You know, why, why are we seeing the numbers play out the way that they do? And is it just one thing, you know, are black men just disinterested in screening or do they not have access to screening or, you know, the list sort of goes on and on and on. And I think I've heard it painted both, um, in sort of negative behavioral lights, like, you know, just like black men are afraid of the doctor and they just aren't taking good care of themselves or lights of, you know, a frame of reference that might say, well, just black men just don't have insurance. Um, but the truth of the matter is it's a combination of things. And so we talk about the social determinants of health and we talk about the social determinants of equity in healthcare and, you know, the way that we utilize healthcare, the way that we interact with the healthcare system is a function of our physical environment. It's a, um, it's a function of our education level. It's a, uh, function of our community. Um, it's a function of what food sources we have, our job stability, you know, you know, what phys physical healthcare facilities are near us. Um, and then overlaying all of that is, is societal structures and mandates, you know, whether you have housing, whether you have, you know, a world-class doctor at your doorstep that can take good care of you and is invested, mm -hmm. that you have a job that gives you insurance that you can prioritize your health rather than working three jobs and just trying to keep food on the table. And so mm -hmm. it is not a very simple answer to just say, okay, black men just don't like the doctor. I think they're, Black men, like all men, want to have good health, right? But yeah, I think absolutely. the system doesn't always allow them to achieve that. Yeah, and I know, I, and I'm not sure if you'd heard about, I guess, Respond. I guess it was a, it's a study mm -hmm. um, that are trying to get more black men, I guess, to be tested for, you know, to research. Uh, could you, I, I, you've heard about it. Could you kind of expand on that a little bit and what's the purpose of the study and why is that important? Well, I think if you look at prostate cancer in general, you know, it's a it's a disease that has sort of this disparity that's been pretty well described. But the majority of clinical studies that have been done, whether they are traditional clinical trials comparing drug A to sugar pill or this surgery to nothing or, you know, PSA blood tests and not doing anything, those studies have on average had 3% black men participating. And some of those studies have 0% black men. Mm, wow. And so I, we have a lot of work to do to make sure that we are studying black men to understand what the drivers and opportunities for reducing this disparity is. The problem is that black men not participating in clinical trials and studies in general is a reflection of a lot of things which we've sort of hinted on. You know, I... I, last night was reading uh, Harriet Washington's book. I, it's, it's so heavy, I can only read about 10, 15 pages at a time. But the book's called Medical Apartheid. And she was really, in this particular chapter I was reading, she was 
honing in on black slaves and poor black, free black um, persons in the United States being considered medical material, and I use that in quotes, medical material mm. um, for teaching hospitals. And this was common practice in the 19th century. Um, you can't tell me that somebody who has that as part of their family history is, ex um, is excited to come enroll in that same academic center's big clinical trial for prostate cancer. Um, right, I think oftentimes right. we, we talk about Tuskegee, but there's, there's a timeline. It's not a single event that has created this mistrust. Um, you asked about Respond. It's a great initiative. It's a cancer moonshot trial that's being uh, sponsored by the National Cancer Institute. The goal is to get Black men that have had prostate cancer treatment to engage in a variety of questionnaires to get some of that this baseline information about who they are, you know, what their motivations were, uh, their experience with treatment, but also to get tissue and blood to see if there aren't any biologic markers that could help treat black men better. Mm. Um, you know, it's in its early phases. I'm not one of the investigators of the trial. I do know a couple of them and have had an opportunity to interact. It's an important effort, but I also honestly don't know where they are in the process of getting men enrolled um, and, and ultimately providing some data that will hopefully help us take better care of black men. Great, great. And so also one of the things you hear, you hear commercials about beta prostate um, and I guess, you know, pills that help um, um, keep the prostate healthy. Do those things help keep the prostate healthy? Good question. Uh, I, to date, I don't know of any literature that supports um, that those things improve any particular outcome. You know, those uh, naturopathic um, remedies aren't always uh, required to be scrutinized in the same way that a drug that goes through FDA approval um, does. For me, what I tell my, my, my patients and the men I take care of is, you know, if it's not causing harm, you know, so if it doesn't have some agent that I know for a fact is not good for you, um, I don't have a problem with it. You know, I think healing and being well is a holistic process and so if that if, if taking something like a you know prostate vitamin is gonna is gonna help you um, feel better then i, I support it um, but i i can't you know say it's going to reduce your risk of having some kind of urinary event or prostate cancer gotcha. i mean there's that's just not good to know to good to know good to know because, uh, you know, you hear the commercials all the time. And, of course, I, you know, especially on the sports talk show. So, yeah, uh, it's always quite Well, there are supplements, you know? right? So supplements have a different criteria for um, making in their way onto the shelf than, than drugs do. So mm, okay. um, just I think I, I do caution men, you know, don't do your research. Uh, stay safe, but you know if it's not if it's not harming you, then I don't have. Great, this is uh, this has been very helpful. I think you know any education or knowledge that we can um, gain as black men and and in an open forum like this, just get people to talk or even least think about our health because mm -hmm. to try to just think that it's going to go away or you know it's some. Uh, or it's uncomfortable to talk about is we're doing ourselves a disservice. So the fact that we we had an opportunity to talk about it has been great. So I thank you. 
Um, but I, I will say you said something that really strikes a chord in me. You know, we've been collecting cancer data in the United States since the 1970s. Okay, so since 1970, National Cancer Institute and a variety of sites across the country has been tracking all the cancers in the U.S. And for prostate cancer since the 70s, black men have been 60 to 70 percent more likely to be diagnosed, twice as likely to die. And it hasn't changed, despite all the intervention and the new drugs and the technology. We're we're at a we're at a nexus right now. I mean, this has to change. Um, you know, as providers, I know m many of my colleagues across the country, of all races, you know, creeds, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, are really passionate about trying to solve this issue and understand it better. You know, right here in the University of Washington, uh, we're engaging a series of studies. Um, that are what we call qualitative research. So mm. and quite literally just sitting down with men and, and talking. And I think until we go to that base level of, you know, I almost call it like market research, that might be the MBA in me, but we got to understand what the problem really is. And we need to understand it from the patients. Um, and then beyond that, I think we really need to invest in making the patients key stakeholders in, in the studies that we design and, and complete. So I'm hoping that the um, the focus and energy in this space that exists currently can be harnessed to empower black men to take control of, of prostate cancer as a disease process and to help us get parity, equity. That's what we need. Yeah. And so, and that's, and I'm glad you mentioned that uh, because I'm sure most of us uh, lay people don't know that. So since it hasn't really been any I guess, changes or, you know, haven't been able to figure out why it impacts African-American men more. Is that kind of puzzling or does it make your job or going to work every day that more challenging because it is a little bit more difficult being also an African-American man? Yeah, that's an, in I mean, that's an interesting question. Uh, we know what some of the big drivers are. I mean, I, I, like I said earlier, we know that if we get people the same treatment, the outcomes seem to be about the same. But there's also some data to suggest that, you know, the disease might be more aggressive in black men. We don't we don't understand anything about that. I, I think historically we've looked at that and said, okay, black men must have bi a different biology that creates more aggressive tumors. I, you know, that there's a history of, of using race and biology in that manner that's not productive. And I, I think that um, oftentimes points the finger at a community and says, well, the, the bad outcomes you have is just because you know, you're made up of bad stuff, so to speak. The truth of the matter is the place we, places we live, you know, are we in a city that has polluted water? Is our community forced to be by the highway or the power plant in, in, in mm -hmm. town? Mm -hmm. you know, these are things that are unmeasured that might be driving our, our cancer risk among black men, I should say. For me, it's personal because you know, these statistics might reflect my risk someday. They certainly reflect the risk of my cousins, my uncles, my dad. It's, it's the people that are closest to me that bear out these numbers. Um, so if anything, I go to work excited because I know that for me, especially now at this point in my career, I'm at a really great institution with great people. They believe in what I want to do. Um, I'm starting to build a really great team uh, of people that are interested in doing this work. Um, 
and I, you know, it might take my entire career. I might, I'm, you know, I might be hanging it up in three or four <laughs> decades before I can say, Hey, we, we, we did make a difference, but right. you know, I'd be, I would be proud of that. And that's sort of where I'm at. And so I wanted to ask you just because, which I'd never even thought about, but, but internationally, or let's take Africa, mm-hmm. um, are we seeing those same issues? Because, you know, I mean, it'd be, you know, Africa would be predominantly African-American or African, but do we see those same issues in their country as well? Yeah. So my parents are from Ghana, West Africa. Okay. Um, And so I've thought about this a lot. Um, The truth of the matter is prostate cancer is a really common disease worldwide. You know, in the U S one in nine men will be diagnosed with prostate cancer. We, you know, we say the rate for black men is about one in six or one in seven. So, you know, one in nine here, you go across the pond, so to speak, the risk of prostate cancer, we estimate to be about the same. So probably similar rates. What's hard to, about studying prostate cancer in the developing world, like in Ghana, which actually has a lot of resources, is the is lack of these registries. So I told you in the United States, you know, federal government put a lot of money into being able to track cancer statistics. That is the sign of an affluent country being able mm. to do surveillance in that way. We don't okay. have that kind of data um, in places like Ghana, uh, at least not at, to that scale. And so it's hard to do an apples to apples comparison of oh, prostate cancer um, in that way. What I will tell you is that when you look at prostate cancer death, so dying from prostate cancer, where that seemed, uh, there was data collected by the World Health Organization. Places that have large black populations or um, men of African ancestry populations, so like the Caribbean, portions of West Africa, do seem to have uh, higher rates of prostate cancer death. And so compared to other, other places in the world. So again, I, is that a reflection of biology? I don't know, but it might just reflect the fact that if you get prostate cancer in Ghana, there is no robotic surgeon that's going to take out your prostate early. Um, you know, there may not be access to drugs that we use commonly to treat advanced prostate cancer. So you're more likely to die. You know, it might be a resource issue. Um, but I think it's an area to, to study. And, you know, um, some really uh, talented scientists here in the U.S. I can think of a couple that are up in Boston have decided to go straight to Africa, collect um uh data to try and answer this question you know is there is there a connection between some of the statistics we see here in the u.s and what's going on um abroad wow okay great that's well that's good to know and it's you know i mean i know we focus on um you know on america but maybe you know that may be a great place especially when we look back at our ancestors and you know, and if we see markers that and it may be helpful, you know, down the line and hopefully you'll be able to be a part of discovering something. So I'd uh, love to hear about that. But and I thank you. So but we you know, always want to end the show because, you know, even though our uh, the Black Men Speak podcast is we want to really hear uh, what people are doing in the communities. Uh, we always always want to know how you're doing. And so as a black man. You know, what, what's on your mind right now? Yeah, that's heavy. <laughs> um, that's heavy. I, you know, a lot, a lot. Um, I think we started the show with why, why did I decide to do urology? 
and I told you it was just role model. There is a tremendous amount of pressure that I've put on myself, not only to take care of my family, but to be a shining example that someone that can look like me can truly be excellent as a, as a clinician, as a, as a researcher. And um, I don't know if that burden is any different from anyone else who's motivated and hungry, but I, you know, I, I will, I do see that lens. I see, I do see th things through that lens that, you know, maybe if I don't do my job well, others behind me don't get the same opportunity. Um, and, and that's somewhat, maybe a little bit selfish, uh, way of, of viewing it, um, or a little egotistical, I don't know, but it is, it is a burden that I, I carry. And that's something I think about for other black men who are, are trying to be a shining example in their communities. Um, it can sometimes come with a lot of pressure to not fail. And ironically, failure is a part of life. The failures are sometimes how we get better. Um, but doesn't seem to sometimes be a lot of room for that. Second thing for me is I, you know, we were talking about family at the beginning of the podcast. And I have a 20 month old son. I have a four year old daughter. And I'm always thinking about what this world I, I'm leaving behind for them is going to look like. Now, are they going to face the same struggles and challenges that I faced? Right. And, and I, it's, it's interesting to me when I talk to friends sometimes because of what I've accomplished, right, being being a physician, sometimes folks think some of the tough things that can happen for a black man in the United States that we're we're not privy to, right? Um, and so I, I think that's that's that weighs heavily on me, you know. Well, my my son feels safe in his own community, um, uh, yeah, in, in a couple of decades. Yeah, and I've yeah I've heard that from several of the brothers who've been on before. You know, what do we what are we going to leave behind or for our kids? And I think by the mere fact that you're, you know, you're the research that you're doing on a day-to-day -day basis, trying to uh, not only find a cure, but you're trying to find a, um, what are the causes that are affect, affecting men with, especially with prostate cancer and the like, and, um, and, and showing up every day to, to do your best, I think is a testament that is a pretty good legacy that I think your kids uh, will be proud of. So I just wanted, I wanted so to much. say that. And, uh, but I thank you um, tonight for being on. I know it's, it's about what, about four o'clock there. Uh, so thank yeah. you for, um, for being on this afternoon and, um, and hopefully uh, you can enjoy the rest of your Sunday. Thank you. Again, I, this has been such a wonderful conversation, an important one, and uh, who knows, maybe there'll be an opportunity for us to circle back in the future. Dr. Niemi definitely gave us food for thought. So here are three takeaways from tonight's show. African-American men are 1.8 times more likely to be diagnosed with and 2.2 times more likely to die from prostate cancer. By age 45, you should at least have a PSA test and even a digital rectal exam to check for swelling and inflammation of the prostate. If you have any symptoms and don't ignore them, find a urologist you can trust that will give you the truth. Black Men Speak was written and produced and edited by me, Keith Denton. You can listen, share, and comment 
wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And as you know, we always end the show with a quote. And this one comes from W.E.B. Dubois. Now is the accepted time, not tomorrow, not some more convenient season. It is today that our best work can be done and not some future day or future year. This is Keith Dent from the Black Men Speak Podcast. Peace.